Let me, let me uh, read to you a verse, or reread to you a verse from Jeremiah 29, verse 13, where I read this to you the other night, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you. God is the God to be sought. The pagan gods have to be appeased. You have to do something to keep the angry gods from doing malevolent things. That's the pagan view of God. The Judeo-Christian view of God is he is to be sought. He manifests himself to us in two books. We have special revelation here, and we have general revelation out there. So he's showing himself to us all the time, but he still waits for us to go beyond what we see. What, what's immediate? He wants us to seek him. And he basically says, I will not be found by you unless you seek me. So he woos us, both with his written word and in general revelation out there. Now the scripture says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search it out. And people who don't search it out don't really seek him either. And so whenever Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? And Peter responded with a lesser kind of love. It's like Peter's saying, I'm not really that interested. So there's a lot to be thought about there. So thank you for those thoughts. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There is an awful lot there. Some things God has reserved for himself. We bump up against the wall in some things. For example, why, Luke, were you born where you were? Why was your mama there? Yeah, we don't know. And we can't search that out. That's something we just leave with the Lord our God. But there are an awful lot of things that he has revealed that he wants us to search out. Well, we'd like to do a little search out this morning. And the thing that I would like to search out first uh, is uh, maybe making us a little bit uncomfortable. I'll just say it. The wonderful things that belong to our heritage are mostly on the other side of the ocean. And uh, some of the stuff that went on to this country, last night I talked to you about God's dilemma. I shake my head. And it's just a marvel to me that we're even here this morning. There must have been enough faith somewhere that God has decided he's going to continue to open up himself and reveal some things to us. And I'd like to publicly bless Harold Bender. He died in 1962 for providing the research, the interest, and directing our people back to where the glory was. And he's the one who wrote this Anabaptist vision booklet. He has searched a lot out already for us. And he has inspired other people to continue doing the search. So I don't think I got finished quite last night, and so I'm going to broach this uh, 
It's not a real pleasant topic, but I feel I owe it to you. Okay, I'm going to talk to you quite a bit more about the two legs. Truth stands on two legs. But I don't want to go far into that. All I want to do is introduce what I'm, this terrible thing I'm going to share with you. We have faith, and then we have works. Or we could say faith and tradition. And tradition has been probably the biggest thing that has carried us through the dry spaces. There's a memory, a collective memory of the glory of God that was manifest in Europe, and we've not totally forgotten that yet. We have Martyr's Mirror, which shows us some of that glory. And so we're really glad for that. But there are some things from Europe that got carried over here that are not okay. In Europe, people have been living there for so long that the water supply of Europe has not always been the purest. And so Europeans, if you go to Germany today, the national drink is beer. And throughout Europe, alcoholic beverages, you're just supposed to be moderate. And that tradition came with us, so much so that uh, we had distillers among us who made alcoholic beverages. We were not fundamentalists by history, and so we made no laws or rules about alcohol. And uh, once we got over to this side of the water, some of us picked up tobacco. And eventually, tobacco use became a tradition for some people. This man here, Aaron Shank, would preach in Lancaster County where tobacco was grown. He would have weeks of meetings and he would say, on Thursday night, I'm going to preach a love note on tobacco. John Farry, do you ever remember Aaron preaching that? A love note on tobacco. Okay, so he did. That was a regular session. And they would tell him in Lancaster County, don't you know that if you preach on this, you might not get much of an offering? That's really beside the point because something needed to be said about tobacco. So Aaron understood that there's some traditions that are not so good. And I need to talk to you about one of them. We understand that the scripture says, use a little wine for your stomach's sakes. It does not say take a little wine. Now, some, quote, woke Anabaptists are trying to edge into social drinking today, which is a very unwise thing, but that's not where I'm going with this. We all know that alcohol has some health benefits, but that's where I would understand the alcohol stops for the health benefits. When our people began to come across the water, the first place they settled was in Germantown. The next place they settled before Peckway, I shared with you the Peckway settlement last night. Before they got to Peckway, some settled in Skipack, 
which we, came, we learned to know as the Franconia Conference. Does anybody here have Franconia Conference background? Okay. <clears throat> well, the story that I'm telling you this morning, which is a continuation of the story from last night, this man comes, has roots in Franconia, and he moved west. In the early part of our country, the history of our country, it was said, go west, young man. Your future's in the west. And so they crossed the river at Harrisburg, went into Cumberland County. Many of them didn't stop. They went on down into Chambersburg and Shenandoah Valley. I showed you that map. But some of them went west across the mountains. And the story that I'm going to give you right now, a man by the name of Henry Overholt settled at Jacobs Creek, which is south of Pittsburgh. If any of you would like to go as a family and do something where you have a life lesson for your family, go visit Jacobs Creek. I was introduced to this by a brother, a Beachy Amish brother at Burgettstown, which is the Beachy Amish, from the Beachy Amish Church, which is southwest of Pittsburgh. And I am so thankful that he did. Okay, so I think that's where I'm going to just pick up and show you some things. But I need to tell you and tell you all the truth. Because we are not a fundamentalist people, we have benefited from something in this country that was a fundamentalist idea. It came from the Protestants, and we benefited from this. It's called prohibition. Because the use of alcohol was a part of our tradition for a long, long time. And because of that, there have always been people among us who have not used uh, alcohol wisely. When prohibition came along, it helped us become teetotalers. And I think you folks are teetotal here, right? Okay. You don't even give much space for, for alcohol use. Okay, well, you're the, you're, the, you're the beneficiaries of that. Well, the long-time tradition was not that way. And so in our story here this morning, this man that you see up here right now, this is Abraham Overhaul. He came from Bucks County, from the first Mennonite settlement there at Skipback. Sorry, his father, Henry, did. Came across the mountains, settled at Jacobs Creek, and the family began to produce rye whiskey. Now, you folks are here mostly are so young, you don't remember the, uh, the old whiskey around called Old Overholt, do you? Do any of you remember Old Overholt? None of you. Well, good for you. Okay, so when I was a boy, you could buy old overhaul. 
It was a whiskey produced by this man. And this man's picture, Abraham Overholt's picture was on every bottle, at least some of the bottles. I'll show you more. So I'm going to read some of this. It says, the stern-faced elderly gentleman shown here is one of the most famous faces and names in the liquor trade. His name is Abraham, or Abram Overholt, and his picture is on bottles of whiskey in American packages stores from coast to coast. Beginning in 1810, Abraham and his Overholt clan came through rye whiskey to achieve fame and fortune. The Overholts were Mennonites, a religious sect that was often persecuted in Europe for their beliefs, one of which was that creating alcoholic spirits for imbibing was an honorable profession. I have a question. I don't think that, that statement is actually accurate. But anyway, as a result, when Abraham's father, Henry, brought his wife and 12 children from Bucks County to the Jacobs Creek area, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, he had an interest in distilling. Settling with other Mennonites in an area known as the West Overton Village, he bought a farm and inherited a small distillery made of logs. Production was limited to a few gallons a week. Born in 18, 1784, Abraham was 16 when the family moved. As he was maturing, he showed a considerable interest as a weaver, but his major interest was in making whiskey. In 1810, at the age of 26, he took over the still. He began producing about eight gallons a day, but soon had to increase the output to 200 gallons, in effect, creating a commercial distillery. He also added a grist mill. About the same time, he married Maria Stauffer, daughter of a prominent Mennonite. They would have eight children. Before long, Abraham built this, his family a fine Georgian home shown here at the site of his West, Overholt, West Overton uh, operations. <clears throat> okay, I don't know why that's blinking, but uh, I don't, we can't help it, I guess. But I'm on, you, that building looks just like that today. It's been restored. It is quite a house. Okay, so this house is going to come into what I have to say later. So take a good look at what's there. He called his product Old Farm Pure Rye Whiskey. Eventually, he brought, brought his son, Henry Stauffer Overhaul, into the distillery management and titled his business the A&HS Overhaul Company. As the distillery continued its expansion, a village of workers' houses were created. The tenants worked for Abraham as coopers, lay, uh, millers, laborers, and later even coal diggers, when a deposit of coal was found on the land. Two other overhauled houses were built on the grounds, one for Henry about 1846, and a second for another son, Christian, constructed about 1854. The latter doubled as the company store. An illustration from the 1870s shows the West Overton complex. The distillery is shown with smoke billowing from its stack. This building has been constructed in 1860, and the original distillery and grist mill torn down a cooperage was added. The same year, another of Abraham's sons, Jacob, together with a cousin, Henry Overholt, built a second distillery in nearby Broad Ford with a blessing and financing from Abraham. It was at that facility that the first rye whiskey bearing the Overholt name was distilled, bottled, and sold. Note that at first it was branded simply Overholt, 
and only later it was Old Overholt. And the picture you can see there, it says Old Overholt Whiskey. Abraham is said to have been directly involved in the management of the family's distilling operations until his death in 1870 at the age of 86. His son, Henry, unfortunately died the same year. Jacob Overholt and other family members took the reins. As a sign of respect to Abraham, they added his picture to the label of their rye whiskey. They sold it in bottles of several sizes and shapes and advertised widely. One of their slogans was, you're not safe without old Overholt in the house. The Overholts also issued giveaways to favorite customers, including paperweights and saloon signs. About 1878, they opened a sales office in Pittsburgh. In, the in 1906, the Overholts constructed a six and one half story bonded warehouse of brick. Shown here, it has been restored as a museum and you can go visit this today. The, under the supervision of Abraham C. Overholt, son of Henry S., they also built a boiler house, an office building, and a dry house. The company was reorganized in 1907 into two entities. The now renamed West Overton Distillery managed whiskey production, and the A.C. Overholt Company maintained control over the physical structure and other family enter enterprises. In 1846, Abraham Overholt hired John W. Frick a Swiss immigrant, to work at the grist mill located in the village. While working, he met Abraham's daughter, Elizabeth. And now here it's where it's really nice. It says they were married in 1847. But the fact said, this worker made his daughter pregnant. And of course, that's, that can't, that's a scandal, so you can't put it right in here. But on, on December 19, 1849, their son, Henry Clay Frick, destined to be one of America's most notorious and wealthiest robber baron industrialists, was born in the spring house located adjacent to the homestead in which Abraham and Maria Overholt lived. Frick spent the first 30 years of his life at West Overton. It was here that Grandfather Abraham is said to have taught the future multimillionaire the importance of a strong work ethic and the inner workings of business, which included shrewd bargaining and the importance of taking risks. As a young man, Frick went to work as a bookkeeper for the Broad Ford Distillery eight miles away. He also said to have established the Coke industry at West Overton. Frick was the last in the line of the overall clan to own the distilling business. When he died in 1919, as national prohibition was about to be enacted, his stake in, his, in the enterprise went to his friend Andrew Mellon. When Mellon was appointed Secretary of the Treasury in the Prohibition Area Administration of Warren Harding, he turned over a stockpile of about 2 million gallons worth. Get that. On the edge of prohibition, they have two million gallons in inventory. What are they supposed to do? Do you think they're gonna take a pickaxe and break open and let all that run out? Two million gallons? So he, he turned over a stockpile of this two million gallons to an organization called the Union Trust Company. During Prohibition, Overholt Rye was sold as medicinal whiskey. 
legally, legally by prescription, but also furtively in speakeasies. In other words, you can buy it on the black market. By 1925, the two million gallons had been sold, some overseas. In six years, they sold two million gallons illegally, or some legally. The press used the circumstances to embarrass Mellon. The Overholt brand, meanwhile, was purchased by National Distillers Products Company, who owned it until 1987, when the National Distillers was bought by Jim Bean brand. Now, you've probably heard of Jim Bean already. Well, that's, uh, we're so young that we don't remember that uh, when this happened. <clears throat> Since then, Overholt Rye has been an active bean brand sold under the name of Old Overholt Straight Rye Whiskey. Abraham's picture remains on every bottle. In 1922, Helen Clay Frick, Henry's only surviving daughter, let me just tell you this, he had four children, he had two daughters, at least two daughters. One of the daughters in Europe swallowed a pin and got lodged in her and they couldn't get it out and she eventually died of the pin stuck in her throat. So this is the only surviving daughter. She began to purchase the buildings in West Overton where her great-grandparents, Abraham and Maria, had lived and her father was born. In 1928, this Helen Frick founded the Westmoreland Fayette Historical Society to operate and maintain the site known as the West Overton Museums. Today, West Overton Village consists of the remaining 18 Overholt buildings. It's listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The site celebrates the man who began it all and through a rye whiskey has come to be a familiar face to many Americans as Abraham Overholt. Now, I want to skip up here to help you see something else. Okay, so you see this lady. This is Helen Clay Frick. Okay, so when she was 31, I don't know what to do about all that flickering, but we'll just leave it there. I'll give you a little up close with her here. that. I guess you'll just have to look at it right there for now. At 31, she was worth $38 million. She was the single richest single lady, unmarried lady in America. Okay, so if you want to see more of her image, you can go find us online yourself. Now let me, uh, <clears throat> let me give you a few other pictures. Let's see here. There she is when she's older. And there she is when she's older again. And I could show you a number of pictures for her, but let's just leave her now. She never married. She became a philanthropist. And let me go back now to not the original house, but this is the mansion. This is the Henry Clay Frick Mansion. 
And I'll just show you some pictures on the inside, if I can. Uh, I have to go down here. Hmm. <laughs> oh, right here. This is where we'll... Uh, we can only imagine. Can you see some of those pictures as the interior of this house? It's just beyond our imagination. Those are several different rooms. <clears throat> okay, so why am I telling you all this? I don't know how much you know about American history, but Henry Clay Frick, this, this girl's father, has been known to US history as one of the robber barons, fabulously rich, along with Andrew Carnegie, along with John, C., John D. Rockefeller, and they got their money at the expense of other people. <clears throat> How did they learn how to do that? Well, <clears throat> Mennonites have been very good at business. That's one thing they brought across the water that they didn't lose in Europe. They knew how to, be, to do good business and shrewd business. In fact, uh, the Russian Mennonites, the, the, the German Mennonites in, Russia, uh, in Prussia had a, had a little statement that says, um, Something about a Jew. A Mennonite can outdo a Jew in, its, in his shrewdness, but if you want to bamboozle a Mennonite, you can't even go to bed the night before. In other words, Mennonites have been historically known, even in Germany, as very shrewd business operators. Okay, so that is illustrated here. Okay, so let me just step back a little bit. Okay, so the scripture does say, Use a little wine. It doesn't say take a little wine. It says use a little wine for your stomach's sake. Okay? So it has a proper use for medicine. But you can stretch what use means. And you can use it as a justification for becoming involved in the use of liquor. Well, you can do that on a personal level. Or you can stretch the line and make whiskey and alcohol for other people and other people's lives are ruined by my product. Now, is that Christian anymore? The answer obviously is no. But it was a good way to make money. And the Overholts knew how to do this. And they exploited it to, its, the, to the zenith, as you can see here. So that Henry Clay Frick became one of the robber barons, one of the notorious evil men in American history. And he is a grandson of Abraham Overholt. And we just shake our heads. But we should just be careful because history is not finished. We should never lift ourselves up and say, oh, I would never do that. 
brothers and sisters, some of our people in business are already exploiting other people. I don't want to go any further than that right now. There are honest ways of making business. There, there are good ways, and business can be used as mission, but you can, in the name of money, do all kinds of terrible things. I'd like to conclude this part of it by saying this. There's a book entitled Two Centuries of Struggle and Growth. It has to do with the story of the Mennonites in this area. And here's what the local non-Mennonites said about the Mennonites in that area. They said, the Mennonites who came here knew how to build good, substantial businesses. They also came here and knew how to build substantial houses, like you saw in that picture. But alas, they did not know how to build boys. Brothers and sisters, some of our people still don't know how to build boys. So I'll leave you to think about that. I'm talking without this thing. I apologize. Because I would like to use, I would like to use this machine. You can uh, push the blank button on the uh, remote. Oh. I'll just push the power off for now then. Pardon? Oh, sure not. All right, I would like to now look at some of the things that are revealed to us and our children that help us know how to avoid the problem of not building boys. <clears throat> <clears throat> throat> 
This is a natural law that God built into the world. In the world, we understand that for reproduction to happen, you have to have both male and female. Not one, not just the other. You have to have both. And for electricity to flow, you have to have both positive and negative. Not just one, you have to have both. And for production, you have to have work, but you got to rest. If you rest all the time, you don't get anything done. If you work all the time, eventually you'll crash. You have to have both work and rest. So this is the natural law that God built into the world. Okay, that's not the only natural law in the world. Even when it comes to food, we have both sweet and sour. We don't have to have both, but sometimes relishes you know, are sweet sours. And we have other things. Uh, like in math, we have the positives and we have the negatives. And when it comes to the number line, we have zero in the center. We go to negative, we'll say, see for you, negative would be on the left. This way, the negatives, and then you have the positives over here. And uh, if you're going to work, you have to have both. And so uh, there's all kinds of natural illustrations of this. Well, there's a counterpart to this spiritually. And <clears throat> what I'm saying now is that our Anabaptist forefathers got a hold of this concept in Europe and by tradition brought it over here, even though they didn't exploit it very well, but that tradition carried us through some rough places and brought us down to today. And evidently, there were at least some people who caught this throughout the years during the, the Dark Ages. And so and when people begin to denigrate tradition, they really don't know what they're talking about because, yes, there are abuses of tradition, as just as I illustrated with this uh, alcohol business, but there's a, there's a very positive side to tradition. To, tradition as well. Okay, so when Jesus came, <clears throat> let me show you this one first. When Jesus came, he was both known as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And so when he came, he taught us as his children, where he is incarnate, that we love men and we love God. We can't say we love God unless we love man. And we love God in order to know how to love man. The two are just put together. You can't have one or the other. It's the vertical and the horizontal. You have to have both. It's just the way God designed Christianity. And so, when it comes to faith matters... We have a divine call, and we have human response. And I'm here to say that God was clear in what he had to say about alcohol. But I think it's also clear that Abraham Overholt did not respond correctly. Whenever God gives a direction, the first thing we say if we love God is, Yes, sir, I agree. Teach me to do your will, O Lord. I delight to do thy will, O God. But if we start messing around and try to find how we can stretch the edges, crowd the boundaries, pass over the boundaries and see what we can get away with, <clears throat> we're not responding properly to God. And we'll...
Abraham Overholt situation, uh, I think, is an extreme, but there are bad consequences that will follow not... I'm sorry, there are bad consequences which will follow a less than diligent response to a divine call. I don't want to even find out what that is. I want to do very, my human best of responding to what God is saying. <clears throat> Let's look at some more things. <clears throat> okay, you notice at the bottom first, no spiritually alive church survives from generation to generation without getting this right. This is a part of our tradition. This is a part of our heritage that was formed in Europe, brought to this country, and somewhat maintained. Somewhat. Not as diligently as it should have been. But it still exists as a divine principle today. And if being practical for this church right here at Wellspring, if you're going to continue long term, then you have to get this, what we're talking about, right. God is no respecter of persons. Anybody who violates this is going to have to take the consequences of it. Okay, so what do we mean? We've already talked about the female-male deal. Faith works. You know, that, that's pretty easy to see. But there's an awful lot of other ideas that fit with this. We talk about individual, our hearts in God, but it's also community. No man is in Christ apart from his brother. And so... This is the, the first night I think I talked to you about the Anabaptist worldview, which includes interdependence. Well, that's what this is. We have the God and I and the God and us. God works with us as individuals. God also works with us as a community. And then there's other things here, like God works with us on the inner, within, but he also has something to say with what we do, how we behave in the world. Outer, inner, outer. And summarizing some of this, we could say spirit and structure. Some people say, well, let's get rid of tradition. I mean, it doesn't help any. All it is is a hindrance. People say that really don't know what they're talking about. Because this is a part of this, uh, I don't know what you even call this. It's truth walks on two legs in my mind. And this is where tradition comes in. I've been concentrating on the spirit, most of what I've been saying here. But there is a proper response this side as well. And this includes tradition, but it has to be godly tradition. It can't be just negative tradition, as I already showed you with Abraham Overhaul. Or sometimes people say form. Can't, they want to get away from form. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. They want to do their own. Well, if you go that way, you're over, it's over for you. There's a little bit of inertia. I, I hesitate to speak publicly about some of this, but th this, has, this idea of getting away from this and just go this way, that has been a 500-year story for our people. And of course it doesn't work. But on the, uh, the growth stages that I talked to you, I told you that some Anabaptist churches have decided they want to park at stage two and they want to concentrate here. It doesn't work either. You have to have both. Nothing survives until there is both there. It's a recognition that God works with creative tension between two right principles. Okay, let's look at some more. 
If I had longer time here, I would like to talk about justification and sanctification. This is the initial experience, and this is the progressive experience. And there are special ways in which the sanctification works itself out. I won't go there. Inner and the outer, we talked about that. Individual collect, we talked about that. Emotion and intellect. We could park and talk about this for a while. It's not really my point this morning. I'm appealing to your intellect right now. When I talked about Abraham Overhaul, I was appealing to your emotion. When I showed you Rembrandt's work last night, I told you that Rembrandt is one of the very best painters to paint emotions. People who just focus on emotion doesn't last. People who focus just on intellect doesn't last. You have to have both. Okay, so truth walks on two legs. Here's some more. The first great commandment of loving God with all our being. That's the vertical relationship. The second great commandment has to do with loving our brothers, ourselves. That's the horizontal. One must have the other. Aged and youth. Gotta have both. It's just amazing. There are many, many churches across our land today that don't have youth in them anymore. They only have the aged. It's a foregone conclusion. The church is dying. And if you have a church for young people, it won't last either. You've got to have people with some age and experience. Okay, so I'm doing some proclamation this morning. But this church won't survive unless you are doing some meditation in quiet. And here I would like to just park and say just a little bit. Spiritual disciplines have been a part of the historic faith story for 2,000 years. But they're almost non-existent today. And folks... This whole thing of Christianity does not survive unless there are spiritual disciplines involved. Some people, even our people, are, are getting so spiritual today, they don't need the disciplines. One of the spiritual disciplines that has saved us, has also been a curse to us, but it has saved us, is our dress requirements. When we have a standard, a church standard, it's a unified expression of like-mindedness. And some people say, I don't like that. It infringes on my liberty. Well, that's precisely the point. Because if we were all left to our own devices, we would not go toward Christ. We are selfish by nature. And whenever we have dress requirements, that means I have to surrender something of myself so I could submit to a group voice. A group understanding, a group agreement. This thing scares me because I'm beginning to hear things today that I used to hear 60 years ago. And I'm saying these voices, they don't know what they're saying. Dress requirements and other requirements that the church may put in our, our brotherhood agreement are valuable. And to get rid of that is to get rid of a spiritual discipline that will lead us Nowhere. And so if you have 
spiritual disciplines built into the fabric of your congregation and you love it, you got something really good going. Because I'm telling you, right now, out there in the Anabaptist world, we got some rebellion going on against this. Okay, so much for spiritual disciplines. We've already looked at some of this. Firmness and gentleness. Need both. Giving and receiving. Got to have both. In church services, we come here, we both give and receive. We give our offerings, we give our worship, our singing, and people give verbally in various ways, and we also receive. I was blessed by the reading that I heard this morning. I was blessed by the singing. So we give and we receive. Here's more of what we're talking about, principle and practice. It's illustrating the spiritual law. The two companion truths coexist as pairs, mercy and truth. Love, obedience. Being on the defensive and being on the offensive. You can't just be one. You know, the one of the best ways to lose a battle is just to be defensive. But if you don't have any defenses, you're all offensive, you're going to lose too. So this has to do with military strategy, even in addition to a spiritual experience. Repentance and evidence. So this was a big thing in Anabaptist history. Our Anabaptist forefathers commended the reformers like John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli for saying, yes, repentance is necessary. But then they said, why aren't you showing it, giving evidence of it? You can't just simply cry and, and, and weep over your sins and keep doing the sins. That's not repentance. You only demonstrate repentance and there's evidence of ceasing sin. Very logical. This is like the, the, where we got a hold of this concept at the very beginning. They called this Bußfertigkeit, by the way. Finished repentance. Here's some more. Weeping and rejoicing. Now on this one, we have lost something that uh, I'm not quite sure how to regain, but in the early church, when they came to a Sunday morning, you know what they did first? They confessed their sins. We have gotten so far away from confession that now we are so proper we really can't confess. The confession experiences in my life have been so few that I can, I can count them on this hand. The, the times that I've heard thorough, heartfelt confession. I've heard simple confessions, but when you see heartfelt confession, it does, it does deep things inside of a person. And so we often come and we worship and we rejoice, which is very proper. And I know you can't really sing and weep at the same time, but one of the things that our River Brethren friends have that we don't have is that when they meet, instead of having Sunday school, they have, they have what they call, somebody help me, what do they call first? A confession meeting or experience? They have the experience meeting 
where they sit here. And I, when I attended a River Brethren service, I was so shocked that here are these old ladies crying as they're confessing. So the River Brethren still do this to this day. They both weep and rejoice in a service. We'll just leave that. Old, no, or ancient and recent. And so we talked about some of the old Anabaptist story, and I needed to tell you about Abraham Overholt, which is less ancient, and tonight I will tell you about the most recent, so the most recent Anabaptist story. Simplicity and complexity. Humility and confidence. Can't have just one, can't have just the other. Got to have both. Ignorance of evil, truly ignorance. True ignorance of evil. When our young men grow up without pornography, a part of their story, they have a head start in life. You women are the losers when men are into pornography. And you women ought to do everything you can to protect and help your men. Not only are we ignorant here, but we ought to have a lot of godly wisdom over here. I'm not going to turn this little machine back on, but there are more. Um, you can't see through this, can you? No, you can't. All right. I don't have as an overhead. But you got, we've got to have both vision and history. Got to look at the past. You got to understand where you're going. And by the way, people who don't know their story don't know where they're going either. That's why history is so important. We gotta have intuition and we gotta have analysis. You can't explain both of those. It's just like you women are gifted with intuition and we men are gifted with analysis. It'd be fun to park and talk about this, but you gotta have both. We men say, well, we don't know how you ladies get that, so since we can't figure that out, we're just gonna drop it. Well, we're pretty stupid if we drop intuition. It's just amazing to me how this works. We've got to have both prophets and encouragers. And, uh, and your church is blessed if you have both of those. One of the problems in our time is we have glorified the positive and not given proper honor to the negative. And when you look at the scriptures, you have people like Jeremiah and Isaiah and some of the other minor prophets who had a very negative message. And when you look at Jesus and listen to what he has to say, he not only says, love the brethren, and you demonstrate your love for God if you love the brethren, but he also says, I come to divide a household. He says, I come here to create division. Well, that's bo they're both true. For some reason, we emphasize the one and neglect the other, and we don't gain anything by doing that. So we need both prophets and encouragers. We need orthodoxy, which is correct belief, and we need orthopraxy, which is correct practice. 
Got to have both. We've already talked about the orthopraxy, so I'll just leave that. We have to have both theology and we have to have application. If ideas and theology have no application, you lose the theology, you lose the teaching. And I've already talked about the next one with a picture with Paul Kuczynski. You have to have both long-term vision and you have to have short-term vision, both. We have to have theoretical education, we have to have practical education. You have to have both. You can't have just one or the other. And I have the ball on top, and this one I have con uh, as labeled as continuity. Okay, so the reason I do the ball on the top is that we have these two legs that you saw coming down. And if you notice that these two legs are topped by a ball, now balls don't stay on the top by themselves. There's something miraculous here. God only begins to do his work of the miracle of keeping the ball up here when we do our part in response by doing both of these. The ball stays miraculously perched up there. So what happens when it's not? Well, here's what happens. And every church, including Wellspring, faces this. The ball on top wobbles. Sometimes it goes this way, sometimes it goes this way. But as long as it stays up there, everything's okay. But if the ball, if we don't do one, don't do the other, the ball will come down one side or the other. And so if it comes down this side on cold obedience, we call the experience Phariseeism. And there's nothing divine about Phariseeism. But if we allow and deal with faith only, we end up with licentiousness or antinomianism. And again, there's nothing divine about that either. But that's where it goes, unless we cooperate with God and do it his way of keeping the ball perched up here where it's supposed to be. <clears throat> Here's how it works out long term. If we have people who are trying to keep the ball perched on top of the two legs, okay, we have tendencies to go one way or the other. Okay, so we'll look at this side first. We tend to have backgrounds. In fact, all of us have a background. And we respond to our background. And our tendency is to react to our background. And so if we tend to react to our background, we react to our, we'll say, looseness here, we decided that the way forward is controlling carnality with standards, which is kind of like a, a stage two thing. Well, that produces legalism, but there's no future there. You know, a person who takes, or a church who takes that, eventually is lost in the haze of humanism. Okay, so on the other side, <clears throat> and people who come out of an Amish background, this is where they face. They tend to react to legalism, and so they said, oh, we're going to be talking about saved by grace. We're basking in our freedom, and we react to all this legalism by getting loose, but again, there's no future. We end up in a haze of humanism, and we're back. Both places lead to the same place. It's just at different places. You know, all places have both a front and a back, a left and a right. And so we end up at the same place. It's just the same place, but different place. 
And eventually, there's a remnant returns on this. This is called the cycle of apostasy and renewal. Okay, so we don't have to go there. If we're wise, the scripture says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. And so I'm here to encourage you to think about these things and to search out and to refuse to, to go to places where there's no blessing. So... I think I'll just close with that. Thank you for your attention. Maybe uh, someone has a question before I sit down. Anything I said that we should talk about? All right. Thank you very much.